Section 4 of Lives of the Most Remarkable Criminals, Volume 2. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Jeffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa. Lives of the Most Remarkable Criminals, Volume 2, by Arthur L. Hayward. Jonathan Wilde, Part 2. He was no sooner gone than Jonathan told the lady that she would be too late at the merchants unless they took coach, which thereupon they did and stopped over against the counter gate by the stocks market. Footnote. This was the poultry counter. End of footnote. She wondered at all this, but by the time they have been in a tavern a very little space, back comes Jonathan's emissary with the green purse and the gold in it. She says, sir, said the fellow to Wilde, she has only broke a guinea of the money for garnish and wine, and here's all the rest of it. Very well, says Jonathan, give it to the lady. Will you please to tell it, madam? The lady accordingly did, and found there were forty-nine. Bless me, says she. I think the woman's bewitched. She has sent me ten guineas more than I should have had. No, madam, replied Wilde. She has sent you back again the ten guineas which she received for the book. I never suffer any such practices in my way. I obliged her, therefore to give up the money she had taken as well as that she had stole. And therefore I hope, whatever you may think of her, that you will not have a worse opinion of your humble servant for this accident. The lady was so much confounded and confuted at these unaccountable incidents that she scarce knew what she did. At last recollecting herself, well, Mr. Wilde, says she, I think the least I can do is to oblige you to accept of these ten guineas. No, replied he, nor of ten farthings. I scorn all actions of such a sort as much as any man of quality in the kingdom. All the reward I desire, madam, is that you will acknowledge I have acted like an honest man and a man of honour. He had scarce pronounced these words before he rose up, made her a bow, and went immediately downstairs. The reader may be assured there is not the least mixture of fiction in this story, and yet perhaps there was not a more remarkable one which happened in the whole course of Jonathan's life. I shall add but one more relation of this sort, and then go on with the series of my history. This which I am now going to relate happened within a few doors of the place where I lived, and was transacted in this manner. There came a little boy with vials in a basket to sell to a surgeon who was my very intimate acquaintance. It was in the winter, and the weather cold, when one day after he had sold the bottles that were wanted, 
The boy complained he was almost chilled to death with cold, and almost starved for want of victuals. The surgeon's maid, in compassion to the child, who was not above nine or ten years old, took him into the kitchen, and gave him a porringer of milk and bread, with a lump or two of sugar in it. The boy ate a little of it, then said he had enough, gave her a thousand blessings and thanks, and marched off with a silver spoon, and a pair of forceps of the same metal, which lay in the shop as he passed through. The instrument was first missed, and the search after it occasioned their missing the spoon, and yet nobody suspected anything of the boy, though they had all seen him in the kitchen. The gentlemen of the house, however, having some knowledge of Jonathan Wilde, and not living far from the old Bailey, went immediately to him for his advice. Jonathan called for a bottle of white wine and ordered it to be mulled. The gentleman, knowing the custom of his house, laid down the crown, and was going on to tell him the manner in which the things were missed, but Mr. Wilde soon cut him short by saying, Sir, step into the next room a moment. Here's a lady coming hither. You may depend upon my doing anything that is in my power, and presently we'll talk the thing over at leisure. The gentleman went into the room where he was directed, and saw, with no little wonder, his forceps and silver spoon lying upon the table. He had hardly taken them up to look at them before Jonathan entered. So, sir, said he, I suppose you have no further occasion for my assistance. Yes, indeed I have, said the surgeon. There are a great many servants in our family, and some of them will certainly be blamed for this transaction, so that I am under a necessity of begging another favor, which is that you will let me know how they were stolen. I believe the thief is not far off, quoth Jonathan, and if you'll give me your word he shall come to no harm, I'll produce him immediately. The gentleman readily condescended to this proposition, and Mr. Wilde stepping out for a minute or two, brought in the young vile merchant in his hand. Here, sir, says Wilde, do you know this hopeful youth? Yes, answered the surgeon, but I could never have dreamt that a creature so little as he could have had so much wickedness in him. However, as I have given you my word, and as I have my things again, I will not only pass by his robbing me, but if he will bring me bottles again, shall make use of him as I used to do. I believe you may, added Jonathan, when he ventures into your house again. But it seems he was therein mistaken, for in less than a week afterwards the boy had the impudence to come and offer his vials again, upon which the gentleman not only bought of him as usual, but ordered two quarts of milk to be set on the fire, put into it two ounces of glister sugar, crumbled it with a couple of penny loaves, and obliged this nimble-fingered youth 
to eat it every drop up before he went out of the kitchen door, and then without farther correction hurried him about his business. This was the channel in which Jonathan's business usually ran, but to support his credit with the magistrates, he was forced to add thief-catching to it, and every sessions or two strung up some of the youths of his own bringing up to the gallows. But this, however, did not serve his turn. An honourable person on the bench took notice of his manner of acting, which being become at last very notorious, an act of Parliament was passed, leveled directly against such practices, whereby persons who took money for the recovery of stolen goods, and did actually recover such goods without apprehending the felon, should be deemed guilty in the same degree of felony with those who committed the fact in taking such goods as were returned. And after this became law, the same honourable person sent to him to warn him of going on any longer at his old rate, for that it was now become a capital crime, and if he was apprehended for it, he could expect no mercy. Jonathan received the reproof with abundance of thankfulness and submission, but what was strange, never altered the manner of his behaviour in the least, but on the contrary, did it more openly and publicly than ever. Indeed, to compensate for this, he seemed to double his diligence in apprehending thieves, and brought a vast number of the most notorious amongst them to the gallows, even though he himself had bred them up in the art of thieving, and given them both instructions and encouragement to take that road which was ruinous enough in itself, and by him made fatal. Of these, none were so open and apparent a case as that of Blake, alias Blueskin. This fellow had from a child been under the tuition of Jonathan, who paid for the curing his wounds whilst he was in the counter, allowed him three and sixpence a week for his subsistence, and afforded his help to get him out of there at last. Yet as soon after this he abandoned him to his own conduct in such matters, and in a short space caused him to be apprehended for breaking open the house of Mr. Kneebone, which brought him to the gallows. When the fellow came to be tried, Jonathan, indeed, vouchsafed to speak to him, and assured him that his body would be handsomely interred in a good coffin at his own expense. This was strange comfort, and such as by no means suited Blueskin. He insisted peremptorily upon a transportation pardon, which he said he was sure Jonathan had interest enough to procure him. But Wilde assured him that he had not, and that it was in vain for him to flatter himself with such hopes, but that he had better dispose himself to thinking of another life, in order to which, good books and such like helps should not be wanting. All this put Blueskin at last into such a passion that, though this discourse happened upon the leads at the Old Bailey, in the presence of the court then sitting, Blake could not forbear taking a revenge for what he took to be an insult on him. 
and therefore, without ado, he clapped one hand under Jonathan's chin, and with the other, taking a sharp knife out of his pocket, cut him a large gash across the throat, which everybody at the time it was done judged mortal. Jonathan was carried off all covered with blood, and though at that time he professed the greatest resentment for such usage, affirming that he had done all that lay in his power for the man who had so cruelly designed against his life, yet when he afterwards came to be under sentence of death, he regretted prodigiously the escape he had made then from death, often wishing that the knife of Blake had put an end to his life, rather than left him to linger out his days till so ignominious a fate befell him. But it was not only Blake who had entertained notions of putting him to death. He had disobliged almost the whole group of villains with whom he had concern, and there were numbers of them who had taken it into their heads to deprive him of life. His escapes in the apprehending such persons were sometimes very narrow. He received wounds in almost every part of his body, his skull was twice fractured, and his whole constitution so broken by these accidents and the great fatigue he went through, that when he fell under the misfortunes which brought him to his death, he was scarce able to stand upright, and was never in a condition to go to chapel. But we have broke a little into the thread of our history, and must therefore go back in order to trace the causes which brought on Jonathan's last adventures, and finally his violent death. This we shall now relate in the clearest and concisest manner that the thing will allow, being well furnished for that purpose, having, to personal experience, added the best intelligence that could be procured, and that, too, from persons the most deserving of credit. The practices of this criminal in the manner we have before mentioned continued long after the Act of Parliament, and in so notorious a manner, at last, that the magistrates in London and Middlesex thought themselves obliged by the duty of their office to take notice of him. This occasioned a warrant to be granted against him by a worshipful alderman of the city, upon which Mr. Wilde being apprehended somewhere near Wood Street, he was carried into the Rose Sponging House. There I myself saw him sitting in the kitchen at the fire, waiting the leisure of the magistrate who was to examine him. In the meantime, the crowd was very great, and with his usual hypocrisy, Jonathan harangued them to this purpose. I wonder, good people, what it is you would see. I am a poor honest man, who have done all I could do to serve people when they have had the misfortune to lose their goods by the villainy of thieves. I have contributed more than any man living to bringing the most daring and notorious malefactors to justice. Yet now, by the malice of my enemies, you see I am in custody, and am going before a magistrate who, I hope, will do me justice. Why should you insult me, therefore? I don't know that I ever injured any of you. Let me entreat you, therefore, as you see me lame in body and afflicted in mind, not to make me more uneasy than I can bear. 
If I have offended against the law, it will punish me, but it gives you no right to use me ill, unheard and unconvicted. By this time, the people of the house and the counter-officers had pretty well cleared the place, upon which he began to compose himself, and desired them to get a coach to the door, for he was unable to walk. About an hour after, he was carried before a justice and examined, and I think was thereupon immediately committed to Newgate. He lay there a considerable time before he was tried. At last he was convicted capitally upon the following fact, which appeared on the evidence exactly in the same light in which I shall state it. He was indicted on the aforementioned statute for receiving money for the restoring stolen goods, without apprehending the persons by whom they were stolen. In order to support this charge, the prosecutrix, Catherine Stevens, footnote, her name was really Statham, and a footnote, deposed as follows. On the 22nd of January, I had two persons come into my shop under pretense of buying some lace. They were so difficult that I had none below would please them, so leaving my daughter in the shop, I stepped upstairs and brought down another box. We could not agree about the price, and so they went away together. In about half an hour I missed a tin box of lace that I valued at fifty pounds. The same night and the next I went to Jonathan Wilde's house, but meeting with him at home, I advertised the lace that I had lost with a reward of fifteen guineas, and no questions asked. But hearing nothing of it, I went to Jonathan's house again, and then met with him at home. He desired me to give him a description of the persons that I suspected, which I did as near as I could, and then he told me that he would make inquiry and bid me call again in two or three days. I did so, and then he said that he had heard something of my lace, and expected to know more of the matter in a very little time. I came to him again on that day he was apprehended, I think it was the 15th of February. I told him that though I had advertised but fifteen guineas reward, yet I would give twenty or twenty-five guineas rather than not have my goods. Don't be in such a hurry, says Jonathan. I don't know, but I may help you to it for less, and if I can I will. The persons that have it are gone out of town. I shall set them to quarrelling about it and then I shall get it the cheaper. On the 10th of March he sent me word that if I could come to him in Newgate and bring ten guineas in my pocket, he would help me to the lace. I went, he desired me to call a porter, but I not knowing where to find one, he sent a person who brought one that appeared to be a ticket porter. The prisoner gave me a letter which he said was sent him as a direction where to go for the lace but I could not read, and so I delivered it to the porter. Then he desired me to give the porter the ten guineas, or else, he said, the persons who had the lace would not deliver it. I gave the porter the money, he returned, and brought me a box that was sealed up, 
but not the same that was lost. I opened it and found all my lace but one piece. Now, Mr. Wilde, says I, what must you have for your trouble? Not a farthing, says he, not a farthing for me. I don't do these things for worldly interest, but only for the good of poor people that have met with misfortunes. As for the piece of lace that is missing, I hope to get it for you ere long, and I don't know but that I may help you not only to your money again, but to the thief too. And if I can, much good may it do you, and as you are a good woman and a widow and a Christian, I desire nothing of you but your prayers, and for these I shall be thankful. I have a great many enemies, and God knows what may be the consequence of this imprisonment. The fact suggested in the indictment was undoubtedly fully proved by this disposition, and though that fact happened in Newgate, and after his confinement, yet it still continued as much and as great a crime as if it had been done before. The law therefore condemned him upon it. But even if he had escaped this, there were other facts of a like nature, which inevitably would have destroyed him. For the last years of his life, instead of growing more prudent, he undoubtedly became less so, for the blunders committed in this fact were very little like the behaviour of Jonathan in the first years in which he carried on this practice, when nobody behaved with greater caution as nobody ever had so much reason to be cautious. And though he had all along great enemies, yet he had conducted his affairs so that the law could not possibly lay hold of him, nor his excuses be easily detected even in respect of honesty. When he was brought up to the bar to receive sentence, he appeared to be very much dejected, and when the usual question was proposed to him, What have you to say why judgment of death should not pass upon you? He spoke with a very feeble voice in the following terms. My lord, I hope even in the sad condition in which I stand, I may pretend to some little merit in respect to the service I have done my country, in delivering it from some of the greatest pests with which it was ever troubled. My lord, I have brought many bold and daring malefactors to just punishment, even at the hazard of my own life, my body being covered with scars I received in these undertakings. I presume, my lord, to say I have done merit, because at the time the things were done they were esteemed meritorious by the government, and therefore I hope, my lord, some compassion may be shown on the score of those services. I submit myself wholly to His Majesty's mercy, and humbly beg a favourable report of my case. When Sir William Thompson, footnote, Sir William Thompson, 1678 to 1739, was recorder of London in 1715, solicitor general two years later, and in 1729 became baron of the exchequer. End of footnote. When Sir William Thompson, now one of the barons of His Majesty's Court of Exchequer, 
as recorder of London pronounced sentence of death, he spoke particularly to Wilde, put him in mind of those cautions he had had against going on in those practices rendered capital by law, made on purpose for preventing that infamous trade of becoming broker for felony, and standing in the middle between the felon and the person injured, in order to receive a premium for redress. And when he had properly stated the nature and aggravations of his crime, he exhorted him to make a better use of that small portion of time which the tenderness of the law of England allowed sinners for repentance, and desired he would remember this admonition though he had slighted others. As to the report he told him, he might depend on justice, and ought not to hope for any more. Under conviction, no man who appeared upon other occasions to have so much courage ever showed so little. He had constantly declined ever coming to chapel, under pretense of lameness and indisposition. When clergymen took the pains to visit him and instruct him in those duties which it became a dying man to practice, though he heard them without interruption, yet he heard them coldly. Instead of desiring to be instructed on that head, he was continually suggesting scruples and doubts about a future state, asking impertinent questions as to the state of souls departed, and putting frequent cases of the reasonableness and lawfulness of suicide where an ignominious death was inevitable, and the thing was perpetrated only to avoid shame. He was more especially swayed to such notions he pretended, from the examples of the famous heroes of antiquity, who, to avoid dishonourable treatment, had given themselves a speedy death. As such discourses were what took up most of the time between his sentence and death, so that occasioned some very useful lectures upon this head from the charitable divines who visited him. But though they would have been of great use in all such cases for the future, yet being pronounced by word of mouth only, they are now totally lost. One letter indeed was written to him by a learned person on this head, of which a copy has been preserved, and it is with great pleasure that I give it to my readers. It runs thus. A letter from the Reverend Dr. So-and-so to Mr. Wilde in Newgate. I am very sorry that after a life so spent as yours is notoriously known to have been, you should yet, instead of repenting of your former offences, continue to swell their number even with greater. I pray God that it be not the greatest of all sins, affecting doubts as to a future state, and whether you shall ever be brought to answer for your actions in this life before a tribunal in that which is to come. The heathens, it must be owned, could have no certainty as to the immortality of the soul, because they had no immediate revelation. For though the reasons which incline us to the belief of those two points of future existence and future tribulation be as strong as any of the motives are to other points in natural religion, Yet as none return from that land of darkness, or escape from the shadow of death to bring news of what passeth in those regions whither all men go, so without a direct revelation from the Almighty 
no positive knowledge could be had of life in the world to come, which is therefore properly said to be derived to us through Christ Jesus, who in plain terms, and with that authority which confounded his enemies the scribes and Pharisees, taught the doctrine of a final judgment, and by affording us the means of grace, raised in us at the same time the hopes of glory. The arguments, therefore, which might appear sufficient unto the heathens to justify killing themselves to avoid what they thought greater evils, if they had any force then, must have totally lost it now. Indeed, the far greater number of instances which history has transmitted us show that self-murder, even then, proceeded from the same causes as at present, viz. rage, despair, and disappointment. Wise men in all ages despised it as a mean and despicable flight from evils the soul wanted courage and strength to bear. This has not only been said by philosophers, but even by poets too, which shows that it appeared a notion not only rational but heroic. There are none so timorous, says Marshall, but extremity of want may force upon a voluntary death. Those few alone are to be accounted brave who can support a life of evil and the pressing load of misery without having recourse to a dagger. But if there were no more in it than the dispute of which was the most gallant act of the two to suffer or die, it would not deserve so much consideration. The matter with you is of far greater importance. It is not how or in what manner you ought to die in this world, but how you are to expect mercy and happiness in that which is to come. This is your last stake, and all that now can deserve your regard. Even hope is lost as to present life, and if you make use of your reason, it must direct you to turn all your wishes and endeavours towards attaining happiness in a future state. What then remains to be examined in respect of this question is whether persons who slay themselves can hope for pardon or happiness in the sentence of that judge from whom there is no appeal, and whose sentence, as it surpasses all understanding, so is it executed immediately. If we judge only from reason, it seems that we have no right over a life which we receive not from ourselves or from our parents, but from the immediate gift of him who is the Lord thereof, and the fountain of being. To take away our own life, then, is contradicting as far as we are able the laws of providence, and that disposition which his wisdom has been pleased to direct. It is as though we pretended to have more knowledge or more power than he, and as to that pretense which is usually made use of, that life is meant as a blessing, and that therefore when it becomes an evil we may, if we think fit, resign it, it is indeed but a mere sophistry. We acknowledge God to be infinite in all perfections, and consequently in wisdom and power. From the latter we receive our existence in this life, 
and as to the measure it depends wholly on the former. So that if we from the shallow dictates of our reason contemptuously shorten that term which is appointed us by the Almighty, we thereby contradict all his laws, throw up all right to his promises, and by the very last act we are capable of, put ourselves out of his protection. This, I say, is the prospect of the fruits of suicide, looked on with the eye only of natural religion, and the opinion of Christians is unanimous in this respect, that persons who willfully deprive themselves of life here involve themselves also in death everlasting. As to your particular case, in which you say tis only making choice of one death rather than another, there are also the strongest reasons against it. The law intends your death, not only for the punishment of your crimes, but as an example to deter others. The law of God which hath commanded that the magistrates should not bear the sword in vain, hath given power to denounce this sentence against you. But that authority which you would assume, defeats both the law of the land in its intention, and is opposite also unto the law of God. Add unto all this the example of our blessed Saviour, who submitted to be hung upon a tree, though he had only need of praying to his Father to have sent him thousands of angels. Yet chose he the death of a thief, that the will of God and the sentence even of an unrighteous judge might be satisfied. Let then the testimony of your own reason, your reverence towards God, and the hopes which you ought to have in Jesus Christ, determine you to await with patience the hour of your dissolution, dispose you to fill up the short interval which yet remains with sincere repentance, and enable you to support your sufferings with such a Christian spirit of resignation as may purchase for you an eternal weight of glory, in the which you shall always be assisted with my prayers to God, who I am, etc. Jonathan at last pretended to be overcome with the reasons which had been offered to him on the subject of self-murder, but it plainly appeared that in this he was a hypocrite, for the day before his execution, notwithstanding the keepers had the strictest eye on him imaginable, somebody conveyed to him a bottle of liquid laudanum, of which having taken a very large quantity, he hoped it would forestall his dying at the gallows, but as he had not been sparing in the dose, so the largeness of it made a speedy effect, which was perceived by his fellow prisoners seeing he could not open his eyes at the time that prayers were said to them as usual in the condemned hold. Whereupon they walked him about, which first made him sweat exceedingly, and he was then very sick. At last he vomited and they continuing still to lead him, he threw the greatest part of the laudanum off from his stomach. Notwithstanding that, he continued very drowsy, stupid, and unable to do anything but gasp out his breath until it was stopped by the halter. He went to execution in a cart, 
and instead of expressing any kind of pity or compassion for him, the people continued to throw stones and dirt all the way along, reviling and cursing him to die last, and plainly showed by their behaviour how much the blackness and notoriety of his crimes had made him abhorred, and how little tenderness the enemies of mankind meet with when overtaken by the hand of justice. When he arrived at Tyburn, having by that gathered a little strength, nature recovering from the convulsions in which the laudanum had thrown him, the executioner told him he might take what time he pleased to prepare his death. He therefore sat down in the cart for some small time, during which the people were so uneasy that they called out incessantly to the executioner to dispatch him, and at last threatened to tear him to pieces if he did not tie him up immediately. Such a furious spirit was hardly ever discovered in the populace upon such an occasion. They generally look on blood with tenderness, and behold even the stroke of justice with tears. But so far were they from it in this case, that had a reprieve really come, tis highly questionable whether the prisoner could ever have been brought back with safety it being far more likely that as they wounded him dangerously in the head in his passage to Tyburn, they would have knocked him on the head outright if any had attempted to have brought him back. Before I part with Mr. Wilde, tis requisite that I inform you in regard to his wives, or those who were called his wives, concerning whom so much noise has been made. His first was a poor honest woman who contented herself to live at Wolverhampton, with the son she had by him, without ever putting him to any trouble, or endeavouring to come up to town to take upon her the style and title of Madame Wilde, which the last wife he lived with did with the greatest affection. The next whom he thought fit to dignify with the name of his consort was the aforementioned Mrs. Milliner with whom he continued in very great intimacy after they lived separately, and by her means carried on the first of his trade in detecting stolen goods. The third one was Betty Mann, a woman of the town in her younger days, but so suddenly struck with horror by a Romish priest that she turned papist, and as she appeared in her heart exceedingly devout and thoroughly penitent for all her sins, it is to be hoped such penitence might merit forgiveness, however erroneous the principle might be of that church in the communion of which she died. Wilde ever retained such an impression of the sanctity of this woman after her decease, and so great veneration for her, that he ordered his body to be buried next hers in Pancras churchyard, which his friends saw accordingly performed, about two o'clock in the morning after his execution. Footnote. Soon after burial his body was disinterred and the head and body separated. Wilde's skull and the skeletons of his trunk were exhibited publicly as late as 1860. End of footnote. The next of Mr. Wilde's sultanas was Sarah Perrin, alias Greystone, who survived him. Then there was Judith Nunn, by whom he had a daughter, who at the time of his decease might be about ten years old, both mother and daughter being then living. 
The sixth and last was no less celebrated as Mrs. or Madame Wilde. Then he was remarkable by the style of Wilde the thief-catcher, or by way of irony, of Benefit Jonathan. Before her first marriage this remarkable damsel was known by the name of Mary Brown, afterwards by that of Mrs. Dean, being wife to Scaldine, who was executed about the year 1716 or 1717 for housebreaking. Some malicious people have reported that Jonathan was accessory to hanging him merely for the sake of the reward and the opportunity of taking his relict, who, whatever regard she might have for her first husband, is currently reported to have been so much affected with the misfortunes that happened to the latter that she twice attempted to make away with herself after she had the news of his being under sentence of death. However, by this his last lady he left no children, and but two by his three other wives were living at the time of his decease. As to the person of the man, it was homely to the greatest degree. There was something remarkably villainous in his face, which nature had imprinted in stronger terms than perhaps she ever did upon any other. However, he was strong and active, a fellow of prodigious boldness and resolution, which made the pusillanimity shown at his death more remarkable. In his lifetime he was not at all shy in owning his profession, but on the contrary bragged of it upon all occasions, into which perhaps he was led by that ridiculous respect which was paid him, and the meanness of spirit some persons of distinction were guilty of in talking to him freely. Common report has swelled the number of malefactors executed through his means to no less than one hundred and twenty. Certain it is that they were very numerous in reality as in his own reckoning. The most remarkable of them were these, White, Thurland, and Dunn, executed for the murder of Mrs. Knapp and robbing Thomas Micklethwaite, Esquire. James Lincoln and Robert Wilkinson, for robbing and murdering Peter Martin the Chelsea pensioner. But it must be noted that they denied the murder even with their last breath. James Shaw convicted by Jonathan for the murder of Mr. Potts, though he had been apprehended by others. Humphrey Angier, who died for robbing Mr. Lewin the city marshal. John Levy and Matthew Flood, for robbing the Honourable Mr. Young and Colonel Cope of a watch and other things of value. Richard Oakey, for robbing of Mr. Betts in Fig Lane. John Shepherd and Joseph Blake, for breaking the house of Mr. Kneebone, with many others, some of which, such as John Maloney and Val Carrick, were of an older date. It has been said that there was a considerable sum of money due to him for his share in the apprehension of several felonies at the very time of his death, which happened, as I have told you, at Tyburn, on Monday, the 24th day of May, 1725, he being then about 42 years of age. End of Section 4 Recording by Geoffrey Wilson, Ames, Iowa